Good morning, church. Good morning to everyone that's here in the auditorium with me. Good morning to everyone who's downstairs worshiping. Good morning to everyone who is at home worshiping with us. These are just crazy times, but we're going to keep plugging along and, and worshiping Jesus together. If you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, you will open it up with me to John 3, verse 16. And, uh, we're going to get started. John 3.16, probably, like, even if you're here this morning and you've never been to church, you've probably heard of John 3.16. You see people make posters at, at athletic events and hang John 3.16. I would say that John 3.16 is the best known verse in the Bible. And I wonder why that is. Why why is John 3.16 the best known verse in the Bible? I can think of a, a couple reasons why that's true. We were talking about this as pastors the other night. We were just talking about John 3.16. And one of the guys said, John 3.16 touches on something that's deeply part of the human experience. It's to, to be loved and to be secure or to be safe. And John 3.16 hits those things. It talks about God's love that he gave. He so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life with God. That's the, most, that's the safest place there is. And so... That resonates, doesn't it? That that verse touches on things that are deeply part of our, our human need that God has met. I think it's also a famous verse in part because it's a verse that's been distorted. It's a verse that's been made to say things that it actually doesn't say. I think it's also the best known verse in the Bible because in that verse... I think you could safely say you get the heart of the entire Bible. Do you want the heart of the entire Bible? Memorize John 3.16. It, as Luther said, is a mini gospel presentation. It's, it's right there in a few words. It gives you God's heart for sinners. And, and what motivated him to send his son into the world to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When you think about the most memorable lessons you've ever learned or the most memorable teachings you've ever received or maybe even the most memorable sermons if you come to church, most memorable sermons you've ever heard, there's probably three qualities to, to those most memorable things you've learned. The first is it engaged you in some way. There was probably some illustration. I remember my sermons that I've preached by some of the illustrations that I've shared. And I know some of you do as well. You remember, hopefully, now sometimes people come up to me and say, I remember the illustration. And I say, do you remember the point? 
Sometimes we just remember the illustration, but oftentimes the best illustrations carry truth into our hearts. And so if you learned something and it was vivid, you had a vivid experience, oftentimes it was accompanied with an engaging, vivid illustration. It also includes something else. It also includes some kind of explanation that helps you to understand it. And then finally, the best teachings that you'll ever receive are engaging, clear, but then they have something that you can do with it. They apply to your life in some way. You have something that you can take from this and actually apply. And I imagine Jesus did this in amazing ways. He used extremely vivid illustrations that cut right to people's hearts. But then he explained things to them and he helped them to actually go and do something about what he was saying. I'll bet you John, when he wrote this gospel, I'll bet you he was, and he was a, he was a fisherman. So he wasn't like this highly educated person. He wasn't a professor at the local university. He was just a common guy. But I'll bet that he could preach. I'll bet when you listen to him, he shared really vivid illustrations. He really explained things, and then he helped you to know what to do about what he was saying. So this morning, we're going to read John 3, 16, verses 21. And we're going to, to look at how John has put this lesson together for all of us. And it's a lesson that includes a vivid illustration, a meaningful explanation, and an urgent application. So that's how we're going to look at it. Let's look at John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Best known verse of the Bible, and it follows what I just laid out. It's got a vivid illustration. John provides us with a meaningful explanation, and then he ends with how we should respond, an urgent application. So if you're sitting here, you're wondering, where's the vivid illustration? 
And the vivid illustration is seriously connected to John 3.16. And I'll bet most of you, like me, have missed it. And even last week when I preached, there was a section that I didn't have time. You can't uncover everything in 40 minutes. Or maybe more. But you can't uncover it all. You can't unpack it all. And so what I want you to do is actually look at the words that Jesus said right before we get to verse 16. Now let me just explain something real quick. There's a lot of debate right now over who is talking John 3.16. Who do you think is talking? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Most people think that that's Jesus talking. Maybe that's what you have thought. I have come to the conclusion that I don't think it's Jesus talking. I think it's John explaining the interaction that Jesus had with Nicodemus. A lot of people use red letter Bibles. I don't know if you use those. Red letter Bibles are ones that show Jesus speaking, Jesus' words. So many Bibles actually have this in red. And you'll see it's got quotation marks. In the original Greek, it didn't have quotation marks. It's hard to tell sometimes where John's talking and how that's separate from where Jesus is talking. It's hard to tell those things when you look at the original Greek. It's clear, though, that John was recording Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. Remember that? That was all last week. You must be born again. But Jesus ended that teaching. John closes out that teaching of Nicodemus with a vivid illustration. He says this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's not a vivid illustration if you don't even get it. What is Jesus talking about? What did he say again? As Moses lifted up the serpent. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then he uses this vivid illustration. Just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is Jesus talking about? Well, he's talking about Moses. So where do we find Moses, church? Where do we find anything about Moses? we got to go back to, to where we find Moses. We find Moses in the Old Testament and we find this story of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness in Numbers 21. Go there. If you're using an electronic Bible, that's really easy. Just switch over to Numbers. If you're not, you can flip back into your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. And this is the story that Jesus is telling. Now, what I want you to remember is, do you remember anything about Nicodemus? He's a teacher of the law. He was a high, highly educated leader of the Pharisees, probably part of the Sanhedrin. He knew, one thing they did know is their Old Testament. They had significant portions of it memorized. So this wasn't lost on him like it was lost on us. I had to go back and read this. I totally didn't remember this whole story, but it's connected to this best-known verse in the Bible. 
John 3.16, it's connected. So look at Numbers 21, verse 4. What happened here was, well, I'll just read it. 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out. Who's they? It's the Israelites. They've just been rescued by God out of slavery, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. God has rescued them. He's heard the cry of his people, and he sent Moses to deliver them. From Mount Hor, they set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Now let's just stop for a second and make sure we're getting this. This is the people that have been slaves. They were slaves in Egypt, mistreated for years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. This people have been released from slavery. They've been freed from slavery. Chosen as God's people. And he's leading them now. And he's used Moses to do that. And do you remember what he provided for them? They didn't have anything to eat. And so he provided manna from heaven for them to eat. So he's taking care of their needs. He's caring for them. But it's just like humans, isn't it? What have you done for me lately? That's our posture. Right? Isn't it true that sometimes you can... Have you experienced in your own life, life that you can experience like this incredible blessing and then start complaining like 15 minutes later? I, I see that in myself. I see that in you. This is what we do. Like we, we receive incredible things and then we start to complain. Well, this is what happened. The people became impatient on the way and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? Why did you free us from slavery to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water, and we loathe. This was the food that God was providing for them. They loathe it. Like, loathe. Like, you know, you're sitting somewhere at the restaurant. The waiter brings it out. You take a bite and you say, I loathe this. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is like, I, I can't stomach this anymore. God, this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents. Let me just read through this and then I'll make comments. Among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. This is a vivid illustration, guys. And, and the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. We're going we're gonna to come back to the last few verses. This is a vivid illustration. Listen, do you know what God sent to the Egyptians so that they might let God's people go? Stuff like this. It was bad plagues like darkness, frogs, turning water into blood, crazy stuff. And then God led his people out of Egypt into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And what he's saying is, just like I, I set you free, just like I've rescued you, I just, I'm going to provide for you. You just have to trust me. You just have to follow me. Well, it's not long before they start to loathe God and they loathe the food. And they start to complain. And God does something that he hasn't done yet that we're aware of. He sends a plague not to the Egyptians, to his own complaining people. 
Now, this one, how many of you, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, I'm going to estimate here that there are not many snake lovers in this room. There are some probably, and, and I'll just say on behalf of everyone else, you're weird. <laughs> These snakes, now not only were they snakes, it's not like they just sent snakes and you had to see them and kind of walk around them and deal with them. They were described as fiery serpents so their bite was like fire they were like venomous and people were getting bit by these snakes and dying this was a this was God's chastisement it was his it was his discipline it was his it was a consequence of their sin that he sent this plague. It's like probably my, it's probably my wife's worst nightmare. Look at her. She's nodding right now. This is my wife's worst nightmare. You once now live with fiery serpents all around you. Like, do you remember that, that show? What was that show? Um, yes, Fear Factor. So we're tracking. Fear Factor was like that place, you know, where you would, you had to do like these crazy things, these fearful things. And so they would like, I remember one guy climbed in. I'll never forget it. He climbed into like snakes. Now they weren't poisonous snakes, but he had to lay for a certain amount of time with snakes just covering him. That's like, that's like a bad day. That's a bad five minutes. Now just imagine if they were poisonous. Well, God had an intended response. And this is what he, and he got it. What does it say? We have sinned. We're sorry. We have sinned against God. Please pray for us, Moses. We've spoken against the Lord. We've spoken against you. Would you pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us? So Moses prayed for the people. And then, listen to this. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, not a real one, symbolic, and set it on a pole. So lift it up high. And when one of the people gets bit by the snake, they should look to the pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. What do you got to do to live? You got to look. You got to put your eyes on what God has provided. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. That's a vivid illustration. What's the connection between what Jesus is telling Nicodemus and what John is going to tell us about God's love for the world so much that he would send his one and only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life? He says that just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, Jesus was lifted up. What does he mean by lifted up? The language of lifted up in the Bible is, 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 there's a bunch of ways. There's at least two different ways that the Bible uses lifted up. Do you remember that passage in Isaiah where Isaiah sees this vision of God or he sees a vision of, of the throne and, and his robe and he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. 
That's one way that lifted up is used. And that's exaltation. I saw the Lord high and glorious and lifted up. There's another way that the Bible uses the term lifted up. And I think it's what's being used here. Jesus is likening himself. He says, if you go back to to John, he says... And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Like a what? What's the Son of Man going to be lifted up like? Like a serpent? If you know anything about the Bible, you see the word serpent and you know we're talking about the bad guy. How is Jesus going to be lifted up like a serpent? Why would Jesus ever use the language of I'm going to be lifted up like the serpent? Because Jesus took the sting of death that was ours because of our rebellion against God. Jesus took the poison of our sin upon himself so that we could look and be freed from it. The picture of Moses and the serpent lifted up is a picture of Jesus lifted up on the cross taking the poison of sin, taking the sting of death that we deserve for us, that anyone who would look at it, because you're looking at it with purpose, you're looking at it and saying, I've been bit. Where do I look? You look, and what happens? You're relieved of the consequences. Isn't that amazing, guys? That's a vivid illustration. Jesus and God provide the most vivid illustrations. Apart from, in the Old Testament, the situation, apart from looking. Now imagine for a moment, imagine that there were people, and and the implication is there, that there were some who got bit but didn't look. What happens to someone who gets bit and won't look? Dead. What happens to someone who is poisoned by sin and deserves the sting of death who won't look? That's clear. But what happens to those who look? Eternal life. Which one do you want? That's what Jesus is offering. It's a vivid illustration. Let's turn now. Let's take a look at the helpful explanation. The helpful, so if you're, if you're wanting to look at the verses, the vivid illustration was verses 14 and 15 that connect to verse 16. The helpful explanation is verses 16 through 18 and will end with an urgent application which come from verses 19 through 21. A helpful explanation. This is... John's commentary 
on what he's just recorded Jesus saying to Nicodemus. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What is John doing here? He's explaining the gospel. He's explaining the cross. This is why we love John 3.16. What is it that resulted in Jesus being lifted up? Which when you might say is that's his mission. Jesus, God sent Jesus to accomplish something. I want to ask this church, I want to ask us as we're gathered, what motivated God to do that to Jesus? What, made it, what motivated God to send Jesus on his rec- rescue mission? It's right there. For God so, what church? He loved. The mission of Jesus is the consequence of God's love. We need to remember that. God loves you. How do we know? He sent Jesus to be lifted up in your place. His love. Guys, we could camp out on John 3.16 for weeks. Look at the depth of his love. What does God do motivated by love? Gives. We see the depth of God's love in his giving. God's not someone who loves. You ever meet someone who says they love you but doesn't give much? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, it's all words. God's not all words. God says he loves us and then he gives. And what does he give? His one and only son. You know the value, you know how much someone loves you in the value of the gift they give you. God gave what was most precious to him. Why? For you. For you. For you. For you. For you. To to save us. This is the Greatness of his love, the intensity of his love. Look at the scope of his love. Look at how far his love goes. One of the, uh, one of the guys on the team, we were talking about this passage, and he noted that whoever was used four times. Whoever, whoever, whoever believes, whoever does not believe, whoever, whoever, whoever. What's, what's that supposed to mean? It means whoever you are, you can get in on this. Whoever you are, you can look to the sun, lift it up, and be saved. Whoever, whoever. The scope of God's love is whoever. Every, any man, any woman, any child can look to Jesus and be saved. Aren't you thankful for that? It says he so loved the world. What's the world mean? 
John uses the world, the, the phrase the world a lot, but the most, the meaning, and he uses it in a few different ways, but almost all the time he means fallen humanity and rebellion against God. So who has God loved? Fallen humanity in rebellion against God. God had so loved the world that he gave his only son for fallen humanity in rebellion against him. This has always been God's heart. You trace it through the scriptures. He's always dealing with a rebellious people. He's always dealing with people that he loves who turn against him and then he's constantly providing a way for them to be rescued. And the, the, the ultimate way of rescue is in his sending the son. Why? Motivated by love. He gave his, only, his one and only son. D.A. Carson, I, I read this. When we think about the scope, we think about the whole world. He said God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big. And the world is big, right? He gave Jesus for the world. All that are in fallen humanity against God, which is everybody. He gave Jesus. But his love is not to be admired because of how big the world is, but because of how bad it is. His love stands, God's love stands in stark contrast to the world in rebellion against him. He loves us so much that he gave his one and only son. He sacrificed. And this is talking about the Father's love for us, that he sent Jesus. God's love to be admired, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. In other words, God loved us. God's love for us is not based on our loveliness. God's love is not neutral. It's not like he, it's not like he came and he went looking for the good people. He came to a rebellious humanity. And he sent his son in love that whoever would look to him, whoever would gaze upon him, whoever would say, I need you. I've been bitten by the, by the sting of death. I've been bitten by sin. I rebel against you. Whoever would look to him could be saved, could be rescued. Isn't this amazing? We got a vivid illustration. We got a helpful explanation. And he ends with an urgent, an urgent application. An urgent application. In other words, urgent because we should act on this. That was John's intent. John's intent when he, when, when he wrote this gospel was that you would listen to the things that he said. He would introduce you to the real Jesus. You would see your real need for salvation. And you would look to a real Jesus and be really saved. That was, his, that was his hope. But God says that not everyone will look to him. Not everyone will gaze upon him. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The light comes into the world, and as soon as the light comes into the world, it precipitates a crisis. You, and, and, and what God is saying here through John, is that there's only one way of salvation. 
It's through the Son that he sent. He loves us so much that he sent away. He sent God for us to be saved. He sent Jesus for us to be saved. But he didn't send Jesus and then provide um, a lot of different ways to him. He sent Jesus. He loves us so much that he sent his one and only Son. But the light comes into the world and it precipitates a crisis. And so what John is saying here is that Believe it or not, there are people who actually won't gaze upon the sun. They'll reject him. Why? Why would anyone reject Jesus? Why would would we do that? The answer is right here. It's right here. People, the light has come into the world, but here's the reason. People love darkness more than the light. Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't want to come in to the light lest they be exposed. There is something deep in the the heart of all of us that resists exposure. Shame. Feelings of shame and guilt are so strong that even though all we have to do is look to Jesus, we would resist that because the the feelings of shame and guilt can be so strong that that we think we don't want God to see that even though he already sees it. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want to be exposed before God. We don't want to be exposed before one another. You've heard the illustration of the, the, the person, I think it was uh, Sherlock Holmes, it was the story, or it was Sherlock, the writer of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, sent a note to a bunch of people in the city that he lived. And the note said something like, um, all is known, flee at once. <laughs> and like he sent it to 25 people in the city. Do you know what they did? They took off. Why? You could send that to anybody. Take off. Everything is known. I know things about me that you don't. I know things about me that I don't want you to know. And the same is true for you. And so there's this deep, deep, intense desire in man to not be exposed. To avoid the embarrassment and the shame and the guilt that comes from being exposed. God didn't send Jesus to highlight your guilt so that you would be condemned. Sometimes we think that, but it says... God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's not what he came to do. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. That was not his primary purpose in coming. Now, will people be condemned? Yes, those that refuse Jesus will be condemned. But that wasn't his primary purpose. What was his primary purpose? 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. God sent Jesus to save, not condemn. Will Jesus condemn? Yes. Do you see what I'm saying here, though? We get it twisted. We think that God sent Jesus into the Son, to con- into the world to condemn everybody. But that's not his primary purpose. His primary purpose is to, to rescue those who have been bitten by the fiery serpent of sin and are awaiting certain death. He doesn't want that. So what does he do? He sends Jesus to rescue you. How do you get rescued? You just have to look to him. What do we do, though? The scripture says that a lot of times, many people reject Jesus. They they reject him because they don't want this exposure. So what do we do? We, because we don't want to be exposed, we come up with other ways to relieve ourselves from being bitten by the fiery serpent of sin. What do we do? Well, we'll come, we'll try to concoct an antidote on our own. Maybe if we start saying to God, I'll do better. I'll be, I'll be a better person. I'll somehow work harder to eradicate the venom from my body. I'll get it out. Jesus, I don't need your work because I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to work to eradicate the venom from my body. We do this. I'm going to be more careful from now on. I'm going to watch where I step. I'm going to walk around these fiery serpents, and I'm going to just, you know, I'm, I, I've been bitten, but I'm not going to get bit anymore. I'm not going to get bitten by this anymore. Have you ever made promises to yourself that I'll never do that again? That's what this is. That's a form of religion. It's a putting a trust in yourself. Jesus, I'm not going to look to you. I'm just going to be a better person. And I know you must love better people. Jesus is saying, I know who you are. I know what's in you. And that's why I came for you. And all you have to do is put your trust in me. And the venom is removed. Jesus takes the venom for us. That's the solution. But we try to come up with solutions on our own. Dr. Morehouse, in an, old, in an older sermon, said something like this. We organize a fight against the deadly serpents. We form, he said, we form the Society for the Extermination of Fiery Serpents. This is what we do. We form a society. We hand out badges, ID cards. We take pictures and put them up there. Look at how many serpents we've killed on our own. We pad the statistics. We, do, we try to do this on our own. Why? So we can avoid coming into the light. We come, we come up with a, with a plan on our own, a moral improvement plan. I'll be a better person and God must like better people and then I won't need to be exposed. I won't need to look to his solution of Jesus. Do you see the foolishness of this? Are you forming a society for the extermination of fiery serpents in your life? Have you done this? Have you turned to religion to try to rid yourself of the sting and the fire of of the poison of sin? Here's, Here's something I thought about. We do even worse than that. 
we actually at times try to befriend the fiery serpents. It's like we're the people that said, you know what? Maybe we could make them good snakes. Maybe we could make pets out of them. If we could just teach them not to bite us. I just imagine, I imagine someone there, the Israelites, um, you know, carrying, like, you know, people will do this on the beach. Sometimes guys that are all jacked will walk around with like boa constrictors on their neck, you know, wrapped around. And you've seen this stuff. Imagine if someone decided they were going to tame fiery serpents. And you sell them, like kids walking down the street. And you're like, what are you, what are you doing, man? No, 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 he won't bite you. He's got teeth, doesn't he? <laughs> he will bite you. It's a snake. But we try to make friends with the world. We try to make friends with our sin. We try to tame it. What God is calling for in the gospel is that we would give up dependence on ourselves, on our cleverness, on our self-improvement plans, and simply look to Jesus. This is how the poison of sin is removed, by looking to Jesus. The band can return. Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Here's my question for us this morning. Have you looked to Jesus? Have you experienced the gospel through the work of Jesus? This is the urgent application. The most urgent application of this sermon is, have you looked to Jesus? That's the most urgent application. I want to share another application. But that's the most urgent. Have you looked to Jesus? Have you been forgiven? Are you in the category of one that is enjoying life now, for now until eternity with Jesus because of his work for you? That's the most important question you'll ever be asked. That's why John 3.16 is in the Bible. That's why it's the best known verse in the Bible. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son Jesus. That whoever believes in him won't perish, won't die. But have everlasting life. Do you want that? you got to look to Jesus. Now I think there's another application that I want to mention here. And it's this idea that, and, and it gets, and it's here. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen. What's going to be clearly seen when you come into the light? I think this is really interesting, and I think a lot of us miss this. What's going to be clearly seen? That I was the kind of person that looks to Jesus. Maybe you're not. No, that's not what's going to be seen. That I'm the kind of person who prefers, I know the world prefers darkness and they prefer to sin but I'm the kind of person that prefers God I'm different than everybody no what's going to be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God in other words who's going to get the credit if you actually look to Jesus for salvation church is not a trick question God God's going to get the credit If you are actually looking to Jesus for salvation right now, give God praise. Give him thanks because it's a work of grace in your life that you would do that. That's why why it says this. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been done by God. 
you're going to get to heaven and, and you're going to get rewards. Can you imagine? God's going to reward you. But you're actually going to want someone else to get the credit for those rewards. That's hard now. Someone who gets the credit for something you've done, we hate that. In heaven, Jesus will get the credit, and you'll be so happy. Jesus does the work of saving, and so I want to say this, even as I think about what Christy was sharing, we need to pray. I'm beginning with myself. If Jesus is the one who saves, if God is the one who saves us, if salvation is a work of God, if only God can save, then that means we should pray more because we can't save anyone. Our methodology, should we, be, should we try to get skillful at sharing the gospel? Yes, we should. But will our method save anyone? No, it's a work of God. So a church that is effective on mission for the living God is a church that prays to the living God for his work of salvation. I need to pray more for people who don't know Jesus. And you need to pray more too. Because that's a work that only God can do. And then I'll, I'll end with this. You know, it was a tradition in church history that churches painted their doors red. Did you know this? Churches painted their doors red. Do you know why? Because the churches of old wanted people to come in through the red doors of the church, which symbolizes I'm walking in out of the world and in through the blood of Jesus. This place is a safe space. Because you can actually acknowledge what's true about you. This room right now, downstairs in the commons, everybody at home, we are a train wreck apart from God's grace. But because of God's grace and his bloodshed on our behalf, we're rescued. So this is a place where you're free. You're free because why? Because we're not out in the world where you never measure up. But here, we belong. Why? Why do we belong? Because we've come in through the blood of Christ. Because we've gazed, because we've looked to, to Jesus, lifted up on our behalf. The church is a place where the weak and the honest, where the weak can come. And we can be honest with our sins. Why? Because we belong. Why? Because of God's love for us. The church is a place where the weary can come and get rest. The church is a place where, where the wounded can come for comfort. This church is a place where those that have been feel like they're failing can find strength. This church is a place where sinners can find a Savior. Why? Because we come through the red doors, so to speak. Maybe we should paint our doors red. Because we enter in through the blood of Jesus. And we find him there, the friend of sinners. Isn't that amazing? Let's stand and sing of the Father's love.